Salutations, Mets fans. Welcome to this week's edition, a slightly soberer edition, of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro, and with me this week is Greg Karam. Greg. Jeff. This week, I think it's been in the last week or thereabouts, Chipper Jones predicted that the Mets would win the 2016 World Series, and Steve Phillips has them atop his power rankings. So, what figure, cultural, sports, or otherwise, predicting success for the Mets would make you more uncomfortable than those two? (laughs) I don't know, maybe uh, Derek Jeter or somebody uh, related to the Yankees like that? Um, But there's, I don't, I don't, I think Derek Jeter... It's not quite the same as Chipper, I feel like, though. Right. I mean, like, what do you want? Like, Pat Burl? <laughs> Does that be a Mets killer? I don't know. No, well, actually, it's just like, would... I'm thinking, like, Chipper is a specific thing. I'm thinking people that are generally wrong about baseball, like Steve <laughs> Phillips. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I think that the, the type of person that would make me most uncomfortable if they predicted success for the team would be somebody on the team, mm. you know, who kind of put that bullseye on like their the back. the 2007 Carlos Beltran or whatever? That kind of thing. You don't want to, add, you don't want to have that thrown back in your actually. Yeah. You don't want to throw them back in your face. Bryce Harper said there's a team to beat, too. Well, when you're the national, defending National League champs, yeah. you, know, you are the team to beat. I think the one that scares, would scare me the most is John Morosi. <laughs> uh, oh, you know, that's a good Or Jonah Carey or something like that, right? Yeah, the architects of the Marlins takeover. Yeah. <laughs> it is weird, though. We haven't really talked about this. It's, I mean, we talked about it a little bit sort of at the end of last year that it was going to be different this season with them coming in as the favorites, more or less. Yeah. It's a little different. I don't know. I haven't quite gotten a handle on it yet. Yeah, it's gonna be weird. It's gonna it's watching the games, and you're just gonna be assuming big. It's gonna be similar to the way it was, probably in August and September of last year. Yeah, I mean they could go like four and six off the hop, and Mets Twitter will immediately descend back into chaos. <laughs> it's yeah. Very possible. Um, whether that portends actual doom or not. I'm trying to think, like, the last time I felt like this. Because 2006 is not a great parallel. It kind of is. Like, you thought they'd be good going into that season with the Delgado and LaDuca moves. Yeah. But the division... they cruised. They they cruised, for one. The division still felt open, and they hadn't done it before. Yeah. Now they've done it before. But 2000... 15 doesn't feel like 2006 to me. It, it left less of a bad taste in my mouth for a variety of reasons, I think. Oh, absolutely. But we're in that kind of like 2007 <clears throat> mode now where I feel like that's the only parallel I can come up with, and that's not a good one. Because they're, I don't say they're expected to win the division. I think even in 2007, you know, the Phillies were ascendant. The Braves weren't terrible at that point, as I recall. You know, I, I think that. Right, it's a little bit closer this year. I don't. I think that people understand that it's not a slam dunk yeah. for them to win a division this year because the Nationals are still a contender and they still have the best player in not only the division but in the league. So there's definitely something to be concerned about there. 
Sure. And the the gap, I'll put it this way, the gap between the Mets and Nationals going into 2016 is much less significant than the perceived gap between the Nationals and the Mets going into 2015, and we saw how that played out. But at a certain point, it's it's tough to keep. You know, I'm going to walk into City Field for the first time at some point, probably in April in 2016, and see like the Eastern Division and NL Championship pennants on the wall, and it's just it's tough to talk yourself out of them being really good after that. Once you consider their off season as well, and a full year of all the young pitchers, and the rest of the division outside of the Nationals, yes. I mean, it would be, you know, at this point, it would shock me if they didn't win at least 90 games, you know? Is that an official prediction, Greg? You're predicting to win 90? Is a 90-win team? We've heard that before, I, I feel like. I, I it, That's not a prediction. That's a floor of my prediction, I would say. That's a floor. <laughs> that's the floor. Uh, I am highly optimistic. I guess you can't, I guess you can't shame retweet... Uh, podcast audio so that's right that's right it might be opening a show before the theme music in september though just so you know (laughs) i'll write it down episode whatever we are on 173 of amazing avenue audio in fact it's our catching preview talk a little bit about travis darno kevin ploiecki and others maybe but mainly those two ned and ashley (laughs) ray willie gomez yeah. Johnny Manel's still around? He is. I think Jorge Carrillo, too, but it's tough to keep track. Yeah. Anyone want to see your emails? I think I said that already. And we'll do an IFK Gothenburg update. It'll be a brisk show. Not really, because it hasn't been so far. We haven't even gotten into the agenda. <laughs> but we will start with the catchers, and we'll start with Travis Darno. And a question of sorts. That's how I've kind of been framing these, I guess. How many games will Travis Darno play this year, Greg? Uh, So this is tough because last year, right, he gets hurt on a kind of a freak collision at home plate, right? When I forget who ran into him, but he was catching the ball. He was reaching back and hyperextended his elbow, yeah. Spun him around. And then afterwards, I kind of just, I kind of said that this guy is injury prone. You know, and it's tough to throw that tag on somebody and like, what does that actually mean? Is staying healthy a skill or are some people just, you know, more brittle than others? And I'm kind of leaning towards that this guy's injury broke. Well, I don't know if it's injury prone per se, but you do get dinged up as a catcher. Yes. And I think there's something that he doesn't recover from that kind of stuff as quickly as others. Sure. But like, I mean, things break on him easy, easily. I would say, right? I mean, he's, he's Mr. Got, Glass, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, he's got yeah, he's got a little bit of the Samuel L. Jackson going on. Um, so, but then you know, he came back and he and he played the rest of the year after he came back, you know, with with little to no issues at all. So, yeah, it's tough to know. Um, I will say, I'll say he probably plays. I'm going to say he plays 120 games this year. That's ambitious. It is. It is. But I think there is a fluke, flukiness to it. There is, right. But um, you, you yeah. get those. It's it's fluky, but when you're behind the plate, you get into those kind of situations. Right. Where that kind of stuff can happen. I mean, f- yes. fouling a ball off your foot is one thing, but... 
I know it's it's tough to know because some of the things is a foul ball off his foot, his his toe breaks. It's, it's maybe some other guys doesn't. I, I don't I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not, or if it, it is just the flukiness to it. Yeah, I don't um, know either. But until he plays 120 games in a season, it's kind of tough to predict it. I feel like. Right. I mean, if you want an actual, you know, prediction based on a bell curve, what's the most, you know, what's the mean outcome? It's probably less than that. Um, I looked at Pakoda. I think has him based on plate appearances somewhere between 100 and 110 games. Yeah, that's probably. I mean, that I guess that is what the, what they would say. And Pakoda likes him. Sees him as one of the uh, better catchers in baseball. Well, he is one of the better catchers. He in is. Baseball. He just got to stay on the field. You have, you have him right. as a stealth MVP candidate. I do. Well, if he does stay healthy, yeah, right. He's sure. gonna, he's right. He's gonna. He was based on uh, weighted runs created plus. Right. He's the second best hitter last year as a catcher. Yes. Behind Buster Posey. Yes. Um. So you take that, you take in. He's he's okay behind the plate, but he's got um, he's got the framing ability. He does, which adds adds value. We'll talk about that in a second. I'm not. I'm not. I'm still skeptical skeptical about scale, but I'm coming around. Uh, Harry's Pavlidis's last sort of salvo has convinced me to a certain extent. I'm a believer. I'm a big believer in in the framing and the value that it adds because not only does do I trust some of the stuff that I've read on it, but it also kind of adds up to the eye test. You know, these are things that you can notice in the game. Sure, I realize, I, I'm also realizing how like completely sycophantic it sounds. Like, oh, I recently got hired by Baseball Prospectus, and Harry's last article on that convinced me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I still don't fully buy in for a variety of reasons, but it's something I'm, I'm keeping in mind more. I think I'm weighting framing versus other catcher defensive skills differently than I was previously. I'll say that. Fair enough. But you take that if he, if he plays. What if what if he doesn't get hurt this year? Plays the whole year. Uh, he's probably going to be a stealth MVP candidate because there's going to be that soft value that's not going to be added up into your two major yeah, war. I mean, he's metrics a, out there. He's a stealth candidate by sort of yeah. By, you know, like Jonathan Lucroy a couple of years yes. ago. Yes, not actually gets get any, getting any MVP votes, but right, no, but somebody will write an article on Fangraphs or something yes. and talk about it. So Bakota's weighted mean for him next year has him in a little over 100 games, being worth about three and a half wins, but only hitting 249, 320, 432, which is actually excellent for a catcher. But I think he can outpace that. Yeah, and again, you get into the issues with Bakota still sort of considering his first 100 games or so. Before his demotion to to Vegas in 2014, he's been a different hitter since then. Yes. But even so, it's like he doesn't have to. That, that's still like a really good catcher, right? Right. But there's there's upside in that bat. Yes. I mean, if he hit 280, 330, 460 this year, I would not be surprised. Yeah. I mean, if he slugged 500, it wouldn't shock me. I mean, he has. He's, that home run he hit in Philly last year, like onto the pavilion. Yeah, he's got some it's, real it's crazy. Power. Yeah, and he's not a big dude. No, it's like sneaky bat speed. It's like the Dilson Herrera thing, where it's like yeah. sneaky bat speed. He's very stout, and but everything stays in, and it's quick. 
Yeah. And that home run he hit off the uh, the apple against yeah. the Cubs. That was a bomb. So without without checking, Greg Karam. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 2016 will be Travis Darno's age blank season. 27? 27. It doesn't feel like it, but I guess he's been yeah. around forever at this point. And he got delayed by yeah, a few injuries, injuries. and everything. And catcher development curves are weird. Right. I mean, he was still on the prospect list when he was like 24 years old. Yeah. I think they already talked about him taking some, you know, first base reps in spring training, which is a thing you talk about on February 23rd. Talking about Matt Reynolds in the outfield too, so. But he's an interesting, so they don't really have a backup first baseman for Duda, as Mets Twitter, I think, is well aware. Or even really a platoon candidate. And Darno's an interesting one in that regard. Because it allows you to get his bat into his into the lineup more, so you, you might give him a day by playing him at first base. He crushes lefties. He crushes lefties. It's not the worst I mean, idea in the world. It's not the worst idea in the world, but I mean... I mean, it's entirely yeah. possible Collins just plays Duda against lefties all year because it's Terry Collins. Right. We know what we're getting into. Probably. Right. But for, I mean, Flores hits lefties too, but yeah, it's not a bad idea to get Darno in there and rest his knees for a game a little bit. Um, but who knows how they're going to take to that? And I mean, well, pl- in a perfect world, uh, yep. you know, Darno and Flores are your right side infield against lefties, but we you know that's not going to happen. So, <laughs> in the more likely world, Flores is playing third base against lefties because David Wright is hurt. <laughs> <sighs> so, something yeah. that came out this week that an interesting Travis Darno story that surprised me a little bit. Um, I guess he and Yoannis are buddy buddy now. Really, but the reason is he like they share a taste in country music, which on both sides is a little odd. That I mean, Cespedes on one level is rural as fuck from some of the stories I've heard. <laughs> yeah, but like Darno, I always sort of saw as like sort of the Southern California surfer bro. He's yeah, a well, high wa- his, guy. And his walk up music is Drake, so I just kind of yeah. doesn't it doesn't. They bonded over their love of country music. That's. I'm sure there's a bunch of guys in there that like country music. Yeah, I mean it's baseball, so yeah, <laughs> that is a thing that happens. Yeah, it's surprising. It seems like a lot of people like Cespedes on the Mets. He's a likable guy. Yeah, it seems that they way. just want they just want to ride in his uh, car. All they <laughs> yeah. want. I don't know how you go over like a speed bump in that car. Man. You it's don't. Like, They've yeah. tested it on Top Gear. It's not even. I don't. It's. I mean, it's Florida, so it might be street legal in Florida, but I feel like in most places that's not street legal. That's a track day car. Yeah. It's a Polaris slingshot. Apparently he has two of them in different color schemes. Well, that's the other thing. He's like, how does he, he's got two cars down there or like. Well, he has the, the pickup. He brought the pickup the first brought day. Brought the pickup. So what he, now he's he, having the, apparently because the, t- the slingshot went over so well, he's having the Lambo like shipped down from his house or whatever. I'm going to take that like, tomorrow. This is ridiculous. I mean, like, just have someone drive it. You don't need to put it in a trailer. It's a Lamborghini. There's a few. I've, I've driven down I-95 in Florida. You see a few of them. How many cars do you need on uh, in, just for spring training? <laughs> I mean, on one level, I like that he hasn't gone like full like annoying rich person car. Because the Polaris is a track day car, but it's not like super expensive. He's tricked it out, but it's under 25 grand base. 
Oh, really? He's not driving like a Bugatti Veyron or a uh, whatever the new crazy like hybrid McLaren is. I don't, I don't even know. I mean, all these guys get nice cars. Usually, it's, usually it's, yeah, usually it's tricked out pickups. I guess the same company that did his, I saw a tweet, I think it was from Anthony DeComo. They're doing a, a custom Dodge SRT for Familia. And Cologne's, Cologne's on board, too. I'm trying to figure out what Cologne's going to drive. He needs, like, a midlife crisis dad car, I feel like. Like, some ridiculous two-seater convertible. They're bringing back the uh, Honda NSX and Acura NSX. I'd like to see him in that. I just want to see him in something that's, like, really hard to get into and out of for his size. <laughs> well, I mean, anything that's, like, low-slung two-seater mid-engine is probably going to be difficult yeah. to get in and out of. So. Yes, that's what I want to see. He's not that tall, though, so you could, like, cram him in probably. Yeah, but, like, I want I want the steering wheel to be, like, right up on his nipples. <laughs> <laughs> like an Alfa Romeo 4C. He doesn't even have power steering. We should move on to Kevin Ploiecki now. That's your uh, <laughs> auto talk for the week. Uh, he, he, you know, his his twenty fifteen eerily kind of looked like Travis Darno's first year for the Mets in terms of just triple slash. Like it was just, I mean, it was a struggle for him. Yeah, I don't think the. Obviously, the same offensive upside isn't there. But do you think it'll be better in 2015, 2016, now that he's adjusted sort of the major league catcher thing? I have, like, no basis to say that, yes, he will. Um, but that's what I'll say, just because now I'm, I'm a kind of believer that, you know, catchers take a little while. Um, it's something that we said about catchers before – Darno. Young catcher uh, stagnation syndrome, as uh, John Sickles coined it. Yeah. So I could see that happening. But, I mean, you know, it was a real struggle for him last year, not just at the major league level, too. I mean, he didn't yeah. get in AAA well, either. I saw, I saw a quote somewhere. It's like, oh, he swung it. He actually might have been this year's prospectus annual quote about him or capsule. So I probably shouldn't slag it, but I'm going to. Um, Said he like swung and missed at like forty percent of breaking balls out of the zone or something like that, something ridiculous. Wow. But he's not a very aggressive hitter. No, he's a very aggressive hitter. Yeah, he didn't walk. He didn't. Uh, he didn't have low walk rates in the minors because no one really wanted to pitch to him in those lineups because he was the best hitter in most of the lineups he was playing in. But dude likes to swing. I mean, he's not like Juan Lagares, but he likes to swing. It's not going to be a crazy. Yeah, a crazy like high walk rate guy, and he had a very good strikeout to walk rate in college. That's because he never struck out. I mean, he can hit, and I think he will hit a little bit more. But I don't know if there's huge offensive upside. Uh, Pakoda has him at two thirty nine, two ninety two, three fifty two, which in this day and age is an above average defensive catcher because, like Darno, he's a very good framer. Is uh, worth a little over one win in sixty games, which is good for your backup catcher. Yeah, I can I can live with that. And his seventieth percentile projection, if if you believe the bat's going to improve, his seventieth percentile projection is two fifty three, three twelve, three seventy eight, which feels right ish to me, having watched him. Yeah, 
as a that, prospect. That, that does feel like something that he could hit this year. Yeah, and in 60 games and a backup role, that's worth almost two wins as a good defensive catcher. He's, he's a good defensive catcher. He's got good he's framing. Very good framing. He's good, good blocker, not as great throwing out guys. His arm has improved, and we're going to talk about Ali Sanchez in a second because there's not many other catchers in the organization to talk about who kind of had, had similar issues having seen both of them as prospects. Um, so it does seem like they fixed Ploiecki to a certain extent. And he just doesn't have a strong arm. That's the reality of the situation. But it's gotten more accurate and more consistent, which is all you can really ask for. And if you believe that framing scales much wider than base runner kills do, which I think is not unreasonable. That's one of the things that I think I've gotten out of the recent catcher defensive data at Baseball Prospectus, having dove into it. But he's a good defensive catcher. Yep. If you want to look at comps, I think it's Bakota comps this year. Jonathan Lucroy is in there. Very exciting. Also, Curtis Thigpen. I don't know who Curtis Thigpen is. I didn't bother to look it up because it's funnier to just say Curtis Thigpen and leave it at that. Sure. I mean, he played in the majors at some point because of the comp, but do not remember at all. Jeff Mathis was in there, too, if you want, like a, somebody you might have heard of. So, you had anything on Ray Willie Gomez, Nevin Ashley, Johnny Manel? Um, they're I mean, all not very good. Uh, I mean, I'm, it's I'm, likely I'm, one of them will end up in the majors at some point this year just because of catcher attrition. Yeah. Darnell so, or Ploiecki will spend two weeks on the DL. Ray Willie has pretty solid um, strikeout and walk numbers in the minors. So that's something. <laughs> and uh, Nevin Ashley apparently has big power, but it hasn't really shown up in the minors at all. So, And Johnny, and neither of these guys are uh, particularly good with the framing stats that BP has put out recently for the minors. So I would I would vote for Johnny Manel just if he starts walking up to Johnny Royale by uh, the Beastie Boys. Yeah, the uh, that would be the tiebreaker for me between the three. That's that's totally understandable. Because there's really nothing else to separate them in my mind. <laughs> nope. I mean. Yeah, that strikeout walk numbers for Ray Willie are pretty good, but he hasn't gotten out of Double A yet. So the Mets have been weird about the. I mean, you always need those minor league free agent non roster invitee catcher types for spring training and the upper minors. That's just a fact of life. You need a lot of catchers when pitchers and catchers report because there's a lot of pitchers. And they need people to throw to. I'm sure they probably called up Kai Gronauer and had him just fly in to. <laughs> From Germany. From Germany or wherever he is now. <laughs> John Luke Blackier from Quebec, whatever. Just get in here. We need somebody to catch. And um, get his glasses back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have I, I think I've officially told that story on the podcast. So that's, I think so. It's fair game. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it is, there is, it, it's weird they've gotten guys that haven't gotten out of double A. Because Manel was like that too. Like, I think they had Dan Rolfing at some point last year from the twin system. They did. I saw a bunch of him in New Britain, but he at least played in AAA. It always has kind of seemed a little bit odd to me that they, the non-roster invitee catchers they target. But there's nobody else in the system. There's no one else in the system. The best catching prospect in the system is Ali Sanchez, who spent last year in the Gulf Coast League. And I like him a lot. 
by baseball prospectus. Mets list drops on Thursday. He is on it. Spoiler alert. But he has similar issues. And I'm starting to think about uh, to Kevin Powecki, as I mentioned. I'm starting to rethink how I evaluate catching prospects. I've said before on the show that evaluating catchers is one of my weak points as a scouty type. And I, I mean, I specifically focused on Ali Sanchez's framing and receiving when I was down in St. Lucie this past summer because Wally Backman said he was the best framer in the system at the, whatever, the Metropolitan Baseball Convention. Queens Baseball? Queens Baseball Convention, that's what it is. Um, the previous offseason, I'm like, all right, I got to see this. But he's a very good receiver. So it's like, how do you weight that? And we've seen it with Ploiecki and Darno and... Look, Darno had issues throwing out the Royals in the World Series, as we know, and he's had issues blocking balls in the past as well, in part possibly due to his attempts to frame, especially the low strike. You know, I, I'm i going to write about this prospectus after the Mets list goes up, but if you really buy into the idea that framing is a more important defensive skill for a catcher than throwing— and there's other things in Sanchez's game I like, too. The way he sort of handles the pitching staff. He's very mature for his age. There's an argument he should be much higher on my list than he is. Because he can. I think he'll hit. And the bar for catcher offense is very low, as we know, just looking at sort of Kevin Ploiecki's... Yeah. Uh, ...war think, for the past if, couple of years. If you buy into framing... Catchers could be severely undervalued, especially at the prospect level. And we're not going to have framing data for him until probably double A or so. Um, I can see he plays in the Penn League this year. We have Penn League framing data now, so which he very well might. Yeah. But that's it. it. It's the old Kevin Goldstein joke. It's not a draft until the Mets overdraft a catcher. They haven't really done that in the last few years. So that's That feels like a previous regime joke. Well, he made it after they drafted Kevin Ploiecki, who oddly oh. <laughs> is the one guy that's the one guy of them, all of them that's worked out. Yeah, it was like Blake Forsythe, Doc Doyle. I guess Blake Forsythe is the coach at Tennessee now. I feel very old. We are all getting older. It is true. And just sitting here listening, you're to the podcast. You're getting older because it's going on too long. So we'll move on to your emails. Before we do emails, we do housekeeping. This is Amazing Avenue Audio, episode 173. Amazing Avenue Audio is the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. You can find us on the internet at AmazingAvenue.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. And join our Facebook group at Facebook.com slash Amazing Avenue, which I understand has been a tire fire this week. What, Facebook? Yeah, Facebook's always a tire fire, so. Oh, yeah, well, that'll happen. You find the podcast on iTunes, just search for Amazing Avenue Audio, and you can listen or subscribe right there. I encourage you to do both. I also encourage you to rate and review the podcast. We haven't any reviews in a while. Review the goddamn podcast. Jesus. You can also find the podcast on the Stitcher app. Download directly. I supposed to be slightly soberer this week. Download directly from blogtalkradio.com slash Amazing Avenue, or listen to the embedded player that goes up in the podcast post at Amazing Avenue proper. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro. You can follow me on Twitter, at Jeff Paternostro. Don't at me about my Mets list. I'm doing a BP chat. Send it there. 
My co-host this week is Greg Karam. You can follow him on Twitter, at Greg Karam. That was the housekeeping. These are your emails. You can email the podcast at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. And our first email is from Christopher. Hey, guys. As of now, it looks like Dilson Herrera will contribute fairly little in terms of playing time this season for the Mets, which is a good thing. It's nice to see the Mets going for a proven Major League stopgap like Neil Walker instead of rolling the dice with a very young player after a World Series appearance. Going forward, however, the Mets will likely give Herrera a shot to be their long-term second-based option. I'm pretty excited about that. I know he's not technically a prospect anymore, but I look around the Mets system and I see him as one of the most promising young players that we have. He's a full year younger than Brandon Nimmo. He's got Major League playing time and he's flashed some amazing power for such a tiny dude. In your minds, where does he work? Where does he rank? In terms of future value among Mets minor leaguers under 25, he potentially a 55 major leaguer one day. People seem to go apeshit for Dom Smith. But isn't Dilson a more proven, valuable asset at this point? Wouldn't he rank ahead of Dom on prospect lists if he was still a prospect? He plays up the middle. I'm being very good right now. And has more proven (laughs) pop and athleticism than Dom has shown to this point. Plus, they're nearly the same age. Also, side question. Would the organization ever consider teaching Herrera to play center? I know he has no arm, but he has decent speed, and if he could pass in center, his bat would make him pretty valuable there, right? I know this is a long email. I just find it funny how excited some people seem to get about players like Dom Smith and Brandon Nimmo. When Dilson Herrera possesses a better range of skills than either of them, I know he's tiny, but so is Dustin Pedroia, and I don't see why Herrera couldn't be Dustin Pedroia if he hits his 90th percentile outcome. Well, there's a 10% chance of doing that. Maybe I'm insane. I'm just way too high on him, Chris. I don't think you're way too high on him. No, it's like, my, where would you put him? Where would you put him if you had a rank? He'd be number two. Yeah. He'd be behind Matt. It, 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 it falls into the not a prospect, not a regular conundrum. He's like in limbo. And he's gonna yeah. be, He's going to be 22 all season. I think he turns 22 in, in a month or so. He's younger than Gavin Cheney. He's younger than Brandon Nemo. He's younger than Robert Gazelman. He's only nine months older than Willard Becerra, who spent all of last year in A-ball. And Rule 55 sounds about right. And there's upside there still. I mean, I don't want to scoop our 25 and under list, which I'm not writing, but I wouldn't be shocked if he's third behind Matt's, or fourth behind Matt's Syndergaard and Conforto. Is Matt still... 25 and under? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, he's 25, well, right? Uh, yeah, he'll be age 25 this year. Yeah. Which is funny because he's on the prospect list because he hasn't pitched 50 innings yet, but he's, yeah. <laughs> wouldn't qual- he barely qualifies for the 25 and under list. <laughs> I mean, I think we've yeah. seen... But he, yeah, it's... He's had some issues. I don't want to say he's had some issues adjusting to, to major league pitching because it's, it's tough to gauge at this point. But we don't view him as a prospect... So the lens is a little different. And he's been okay even in his uh, limited experience in the majors. So I think that there's a lot of upside there. And uh, I think the Mets think that too. I think that they wanted to give him another year. Um, I don't know if they wanted to give him another year, but Walker's here because it's win now. And you want right. you want lower variance on good teams. And higher variance on less good teams. It's the 2015 Mets versus the 2016 Mets. Sort of the argument I made last spring training. You know, they should start Montero or Syndergaard or Mats over Dylan G. 
Because if you think they're an 84 or 85 win team, you want the guys that could pop something spectacular. Dylan G yeah. wasn't going to do that. This year, if you think their floor is a 90 win team, you want the guy that's not going to fuck it up. Yeah. And Neil Walker is probably not going to fuck it up based on his track record. I agree with that. But I think the podcast is pro Dilson Herrera in general. I've always been very, uh, very high on him. I I'm a big fan. Our next email is from Johnny Caps. Hey Jeff, loving our potential lineup versus righties, but I think left-handed pitching could be an issue for this lineup. As you well know, we have a few hitters who've had issues hitting lefties, and we know TC loves a good or not good platoon. What would your lineup be against left-handed pitchers? Assuming right is on the disabled list. Depressing. It's February twenty third. Come on. Yeah. Is when we're playing third base, second base, and first base. Thanks as always, Johnny. Well, that's so, a little tough. Uh, ideally, ideally, you'd be liking to have Flores play second, replacing Walker, who has yes, not a so good it's, history. It's, it's the it's a strict platooning issue versus the value of playing every day and sort of managing the locker room. Because you can make an argument that Lagarde should play center field against lefties every single day. If, if you're looking to win, you know, maximizing your chances to win over 162 games, Lagarde is playing center field against lefties, benching Conforto, moving Cespedes to left, sort of the defensive-offensive balance. I mean, basically how they treated August and September last year. That could be the model. You know, put... Travis Darnell and Flores on the right side of the infield against lefties. Now, that kind of runs counter to what I said coming into the playoffs, which is start your best lineup. But now you have options. You have really good options. You're not playing Michael Kadire at first base. You have fairly proven platoon hitters. But there is value in playing every day and getting reps. I mean, if Wright yeah. is on the disabled list, I think Wilmer Flores is playing third base full-time. So, Yeah, I think so, there. too. And I think I think that they are going to platoon the outfield like that. You think? I, I think they're going to handle it the I same guess way they handle it. I guess young enough. That, yeah, we'll see. I really, I really do. I don't know if it'll be a strict platoon. but And again, people are going to get hurt. It's going to be fluid. They have a deep bench right now. Which you should be happy about, whether they strictly platoon them or not. Yeah, people are going to get hurt, and, and people are going to play all over the place. So, not too concerned about it. I mean, if it was me, yeah, I would definitely start Flores and Darno against every lefty. I mean, Flores really matches lefties. It's like an extreme platoon split. He slugged like six hundred against them last year. Yeah. You can move. I mean, you can move. He doesn't always have to play second base. You can give Daza a day here and there. I mean, Daza doesn't have much of a platoon split, but he's not as good against lefties as Flores is. And if David Wright's healthy, he should obviously be facing every lefty he can. Yeah. But I think you're going to see a fair amount of Homer Flores. And I also think injuries are going to queer this by May 15th anyway. Yeah. 
Our next email is from one of our many Davids, dear Jeff and Co. I discovered on BaseballReference.com today rankings of single-season K-to-walk ratios in team history. He lists the top 10. Literally. It's the proper use of literally. The Mets recorded four of the top 10 K-to-walk ratio performances in team history last season. For the record, that would be Jacob deGrom, Noah Syndergaard, Matt Harvey, and Bartolo Colon. Do you think this kind of performance is sustainable? At any rate, we should all appreciate how special the staff was last year. It is absolutely sustainable. There's 10 guys here, and seven of them, six of them, six of them happened in the last three seasons. And there's a very good reason for that. Well, it's a confluence of two events. One, the Mets have a very good pitching staff right now. Two, strikeout rates have been rising throughout baseball history, but that rate of rise has accelerated recently. I think Brett Saberhagen's 1994 11 to 1 strikeout to walk ratio is safe. Yeah, it probably he probably walked half a guy an inning or something. Right. Or, so or it's nine a, or something. so the weird thing about this is Bartolo has the best shot at, at breaking that because of his control. You have to right. walk less than one per nine for the ratio to work. Right. I mean, he has two of the he's pitched for the Mets for two years now and has two of the top ten K to walk rates in team history. He didn't walk anybody. He doesn't strike out anybody. That's sort of the argument for K to walk rate versus K percentage minus walk percentage. Yeah. I just think give both numbers and you can probably figure it out on your own what kind of pitcher they are. Right. But I mean, for right. the record, that's why strikeout to walk can be a little deceptive. Okay. I mean, there's a reason guys like, you know, Rick Reed and Bartolo Colon are on it. Yeah. They don't walk anybody. They also don't strike out that many batters. I mean, would you rather have, I mean, Saber Hagen did both. Saber Hagen one of the most underrated pitchers in baseball history. One of the few multiple uh, multiple times Cy Young winners not in the Hall of Fame because he was never healthy. But yeah, if you look over like like the span of say Dwight Gooden's career, yeah, I and mean, Saber Hagen's right there. He's right there. Yeah. Our next email, and last email, is from Corey. Jeff and host, when I saw an amazing Avenue Audio drinking game podcast in my feed, I got very excited. You shouldn't have been. <laughs> However, and this might be due to the fact that I've only been a regular listener since July, I was expecting a podcast with this title to be wasn't what it actually was. It wasn't me just getting <laughs> smashed for an hour and ten minutes. What it was, obviously, was Jeff asking people I don't know personally questions about players I, for the most part, had never heard of before, except for Ike Davis. Man, I miss Ike Davis. You and... Ike Davis's dad. What I was hoping it was going to be was Jeff and his co-host of the day creating a 2016 Mets drinking game for us all to play, either on a game-by-game basis or over the course of a season. Things like one sip of Ligaris hits a ground ball, one drink if Conforto gets a start against a lefty, one shot, one shot if Bart Yolo gets a hit, and so on. So my question is, can you do that now? I think we need a list of sips, very likely to happen. Drinks, not expected, not unexpected either, and shots. This is going to hurt in the morning. But it's worth it because of what I just saw. I like to respectfully request you remove injuries from any list, though. I don't want to add misery to misery, no matter how certain I am of pulled intercostals and darn no freak accidents. Can't wait to hear the list. Thanks again from Rhode Island. Corey. I think this intersects well with like the GKR drinking game. Yeah, I, I actually was thinking about that today. Because one of the things I was like, you got to take a sip every time Keith sighs, but there's a separate game for that. 
Yeah, I mean, Bartolo is always a good one. It'd be a drink every time Bartolo walks a guy or finish your... I had a finisher glass one. I was busy at work today. I didn't have time to sketch this out as well as I would have liked. But uh, I, I think it was finish your drink if Eric Campbell gets a pinch-hitting appearance at a big spot. <laughs> I mean, if Bartolo gets an extra base hit, you got to do like a double shot. Because he's got like one in the last two years. Sure. So that's that's like he's seen a unicorn. Uh, I think you should finish... You should have to finish your drink if... Uh, Cespedes, well, here's what you should, you should have to take a gulp if Cespedes hits a second deck home run. Yeah, I had one for upper deck home run. I think it's just me Cespedes now that Murph's gone. So You should probably do a shot and a beer if he hits one to the third deck. Yeah. <laughs> a sip if he has the canary yellow uh, arm sleeve, sleeve on. on, yeah. Yep. Um, let's see. Lucas Duda. Homer's off a lefty. I would do. I would do a shot. That seems good. I like that. I'm trying to think of the rare. Maybe things. a drink Sip. if David Wright makes the charging bare hand throw. Mm. That's a good one. Mm. I think a sip for every, sip for every swing strike Familia gets on his splitter. Okay. These are just a list of things I want to see this year. A lot of. <laughs> Every time uh, Cespedes throws somebody out from the outfield, take sure. a sip. And, uh, <laughs> every time, uh, take a drink. Every time Curtis Grandison works back from 0-2 to 3-2. There you go. Um, take a take. Oh, take a drink if Cespedes commits a two base error. <laughs> Fin finish your drink if it's a three base error. <laughs> Which he did. I think he had a three. There was an inside a, the park home run there. I think yeah, on, yeah. in the so in the last snap series. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's the one I was thinking of. Um, take a drink every time a Mets pitcher strikes out Bryce Harper on a fastball above the hands. It's <laughs> yeah. a good base. It's a good yeah. base. Yeah. Just, I was just thinking of rare things that could possibly happen this year. I mean, there could uh, legitimately be... How about be... a sip for every quick pitch by Familiar or Robles? There you go. Finish your drink if they give up a home run on it. <laughs> we uh... did already. That happened, I feel like. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then got really sad. Yeah, it got very sad. I think, uh, I think there could be a no-hitter this year. In which case, you should probably have to shotgun a beer. <laughs> Get out the beer bong. Yeah. If it's Bartolo, it has to be a double something. So a double IPA, a double <laughs> guy period. It could happen. Especially against that. I mean, I've been saying this for the last couple of years, but because some of those teams have been so bad, but between the Braves, Marlins... I guess the Marlins aren't that in the same class as the Phillies and Braves, but could be a no-hitter this year. They have the pitchers to do it, certainly. Maybe a, a drink for every shot of Stephen Matz's grandfather in the stands. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a good base. Hopefully someone was writing that down because it wasn't us, Corey. Yeah. Those are your emails. Once again, you can email the podcast at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com.
We'll wrap things up with an IFK Gothenburg update. IFK Gothenburg kicked off their Svenska Kuppen defense this past weekend in Gothenburg. Against Super Etten foes. Spreaden? I don't know if it's Supretten or Superetten. As we've established on the show, I think over the last year, my Swedish, not that great. Mm-hmm. But they drew 1 1. Not good. Okay. They, apparently, they missed a lot of opportunities, especially my man in the midfield, Soren Reeks. Their goal came from their new central defender. From PSV Eindhoven. But it's not a great result. They're going to have to slam the next two teams they play to advance, which should not be a problem because neither of them are top division teams either. Wait, to advance? I thought the season just started. Well, it's a, it's a cup competition, so it's a group stage, essentially. Oh, 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 so like a beginning of the season cup? Right, they start the cup early there, the actual season that kick off until it gets warmer. So like their version of the... The CFA, FA Cup. Cup? FA yeah, Cup. I mean, it, it's structured more like like sort of a, a World Cup qualifying type thing where you mm-hmm. play everyone in your division once or your group once. But yes, essentially. I like that because, well, I like it especially in the uh, English League because you get teams in the EPL playing against teams in League One. This is true. It's fun. I like it too. I liked it more before Sheffield Wednesday effed up against Shrewsbury Town. Otherwise, it would have had Manchester United at home in this past uh, in round five this past oh. weekend. But they effed it up, and they drew 1-1 with QPR after Nuhiu uh, had a penalty saved. I was not happy about that either. But onward and upwards. They've got Holloway on Friday, which is a TV game, which I will be watching in New York. And yeah, we all know how that goes for me, so... Yes. About as well as our drinking game podcast. <laughs> yeah. That about does it, Greg. I don't, have yeah. anything, I don't have anything to plug. I mean, I have my... The Mets list is going up at Baseball Prospectus on Thursday. I'll be chatting in the afternoon after that, so feel free to submit questions trolling me or otherwise. I do have final say there, so... But feel free to troll me. It's never yes, stopped mm-hmm. anyone in the past. Please add him on Twitter. Also, you can add me on Twitter. I don't remember what's next week. I should look this up. We have a schedule. I have no idea. Let's see what next week is. You've done outfielders. You've done relievers. It's one of the infields. Either corner infield or middle infield. I just don't remember. It is middle infield with Aaron York and his brand new microphone. Hey. So that's what you have to look forward to next week on another edition of Amazing Avenue Audio.